Welcome to another episode of Adding Context, a podcast of compelling conversations centered on advancing and enhancing the human experience. I am your host, Michael Bollins. Welcome back to another episode of Adding Context. Today I'm speaking to Travis Rossback. How are you doing, sir? Doing well, Michael. Thank you for having me. Thank you for uh, accepting the invitation. Um, well, it's incredible how many how many big name celebrities you've had on, and now and then and then there's Travis. So, gosh, <laughs> well, I hope you, I do okay. when I plan on getting to it, but you've 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 got some some uh, some clout going for you. <laughs> um, yeah, I with with some of the people I've had on here, I've been really lucky. I'm just you know throwing darts at the board, and I got really lucky with a few of them. So <laughs> that's awesome. It's a lot of fun to listen to. I appreciate it. I'm I'm trying to to grow it and, and get some more more big people on, but you know, I do what I can. <laughs> um, so kind of jump into it a little bit. You are um, where are you originally from? Uh, originally, I was born in Salem, Oregon, the Willamette Valley. What was your uh, your childhood like? Uh, it was a bit tumultuous. Uh, my mom uh, and dad got divorced when I was really young. I don't think either of them really know exactly how old I was when they divorced. And my mom remarried when I was about five. My, my ex now ex stepdad was, um, Vietnam vet, alcoholic, lots of drugs, agent orange, that kind of thing. So it was, it was a pretty rough upbringing. Uh, and then I had, uh, they had, two sons. And then my mom went off to Romania and adopted my Romanian gypsy sister. And, um, and then they divorced when I was 12 and I met my real dad who was living down in St. Croix, the U S Virgin islands when I was 14. So I started going down there and spending a lot of time down in the Caribbean, um, as much as I really could. Um, and th- but then came home back to Salem to negotiate my way out of high school and then went straight back down. Got it. Did you, so you didn't go to college after high school? I did not. No, I, I did um, some online schooling when I was becoming a pilot. They, they told me I needed to have a degree in order to become an airline pilot. So I believed them and started down that path and then started flying for the airlines that I wanted to fly for. So quit doing all of that. You, um, I'm guessing your diving started down in St. Croix. What's it like to dive in such beautiful, clear water? <laughs> I've oh, only done awesome. it twice in my life. So um, uh, one of the things yeah. that we have in common. <laughs> it's just, it's a whole nother world. I just absolutely love it. It's, it's like being weightless and, and just floating and flying in space. You just kind of think up and just kind of inhale slightly and start to go up and you look down and you want to go see that you just exhale and, just glide on over. And it's, you know, it's dangerous. There are, you know, shit happens, anything you do, but for the most part, it's, it's, it's a lot of safe, just relaxing fun. Yeah. It's, it's, it's just, yeah, I really, really miss it. It'll be 30 years this October since I've been uh, open water certified scuba diver. It feels like a long time. Uh, it kind of is. <laughs> do you, uh, <laughs> do you still get to, to dive frequently or? at least uh, not as much as I like. Yeah. The water's too cold here. I'm, I'm, I'm back living in Oregon and I just have zero 
interest in going cold water diving. I, I've tried it a couple of times with a dry suit and it was just too much work and just too cold. And I, I, I am a warm, warm weather diver. <laughs> yeah. I, I know about shit that can happen during dives. Um, as people who've listened to a couple of shows have heard me say, I ruptured my eardrum when I went diving down in Bermuda. Um, oh. didn't realize it till I, you know, came back from the cruise and was kind of felt a little clog and like, Oh yeah, you ruptured your eardrum. Like that explains it. But ah. I think that might've been the last time I went diving too. And that was Oops. 10 years ago. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I started diving um, for the services of being a rescue diver for the rescue squad that I was on part of a task force um, research rescue and things like that. Um, love it. Love being underwater Love the, as you said, the freedom, that that feeling of just kind of being adrift in the water. It's 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 an amazing experience, and highly recommend it to anybody that that hasn't had a chance to do that yet. Like an extreme freedom, like you just get to glide and float and fly, and yeah, nobody bothers you down there. Nobody's asking you for anything. The cell phone's not going off. There's no reminders popping up. It's just. Ah, it's just magic. The only noise you really hear are the bubbles. Yeah. And it's 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 tranquil. <laughs> Chewing up the coral. Mm. <laughs> um you so you started scuba diving, I'm guessing you got your instructor and all that. At what point did you move towards the merchant marines? Well, I uh, I think I was probably about twenty. 21 when I started taking the tests and started taking this, you know, I got into all the, I, I was, I was very fortunate. I had a very good friend and, and a next door neighbor who taught the boat captaining school, Captain Casey. And so I just kind of, for years, I was just immersed in all of the training, all of the book work, the plotting and charting and celestial navigation and all that stuff that um, goes along with getting the actual license and then I think I was, I was probably, oh, well, it says right here. Well, that's a, that's a renewal one of, of 2005. So I would guess probably about 20. Got it. What, um, I guess, what kind of ships were you captaining? What kind of cargo and stuff like that? Or what was the purpose of the yeah. ship? Predominantly scuba dive boats. I, I was on um, everything from uh, at my dad's shop. We had uh, semi-rigid, high-speed, rapid uh, Navy SEAL rapid deployment boat, which was really cool. We could drop them off quick and pick them up just as quick, at almost just as quick. And um, over in St. Thomas, I was on ocean rafts, like really big, high-powered engines, outboard engines on this ocean rafts that we would take anywhere from, uh, I don't know, like maybe 10 or 15 passengers predominantly off of the cruise ships. And we'd go down to the British Virgin Islands and go snorkeling. Or um, I also did charter boat captaining. So people would come and hire me as the captain on their boat for the day. Um, I was on yachts. Uh, I was on a, a yacht out of St. Croix called the Lady BB. Uh, when I was in Australia, I was on a, a parasail boat. I did a fair bit of parasailing. Then I, I witnessed a tragedy. We were 
who are kind of a part of a, an, another, another vessel had the line snap and I was one of the very first few on the scene. They, the parachute, they landed in the ocean. All was good. They were fine. The parachute, the parasail reinflated and it drug them up onto the shore, onto this deserted island uh, in the Whit Sundays. And after I saw that, I was, I was like, no, nah, I'm done. I don't want to do that anymore. So, um, yeah, I predominantly dive boats and parasailing. Did you do a lot of um, wreck dive, diving down there? Yeah, in in, in Saint Croix, we had um, there was there were I, I guess kind of you could say two wrecks in Saint Croix. Saint Thomas, we didn't have a lot of wrecks. Uh, the Willie T, it, not the Willie T, that's the bar. Um, the Rhone is down in in the BVI, and we'd lead uh, dives down to the Rhone quite a bit in in the BVI. Yeah, or I. I don't know if the Rhone's technically the British Virgin Islands or if it's another island just there, but I'll just say it's in the BVI. <laughs> what kind of wrecks were those? Were they like old, like pirating vessels or, or shipping, regular shipping vessels, more modern? Um, they were, the ones in St. Uh, Croix were, um, I, I don't, I, I think they were, I, I think it was like a tug. I know, that, I remember that there was a tug. I don't remember what the other one was. The Rhone was a big cargo vessel and um it, yeah it i, I probably need to do some more research on the facts of that but i just remember it was huge and we could go inside of it and it, it was it was always a real popular wreck dive in the caribbean yeah got it so after your your piloting when did you decide to go from the sea to the air <laughs> well i um, I, I was on and off of, of boats all over St. Thomas and St. Croix. And I just gotten done with being on a yacht and I, I was walking down the, you know, the, the gangplank and I'm going, dang, I just passed up a really good opportunity to be the captain of this yacht, really good money. Like, man, what am I going to do? Ended up at the, uh, laundry mat, getting some clothes washed so that I, I could go and look for a job the next day. And I went next door to the, uh, it was either Plaza Extra or Pueblo. I think it was Pueblo or Food food for Less. Anyway, I was in St. Thomas and I go next door to get some food and I was checking out and I saw this flying magazine and like this light went off and I like stepped through into a parallel universe almost. And I just heard, you're a pilot. It's like, <laughs> okay, I'm a pilot. And I held up this magazine, like, do you guys realize what this is? And they all kind of looked at me like crazy white boy. And I bought it and I didn't have enough money to buy some of my shirts, one of my shirts from, from the laundromat, but I didn't care because I was a pilot. <laughs> and um, I had like $4 to my name after that. And I got back to my house and the landlord's knocking on the door asking for rent. And I didn't care. I was a pilot. And so I started calling the flight schools and they were like, yeah, it's 180 grand. You know, you don't understand. I, I want to fly for the Seaborne Airlines. You know, like that's what I want to do. Like, yeah, it's going to cost you 180 grand. 
I got four bucks. What can I get $4? <laughs> and after about the fourth school, finally, somebody told me about student loans and about how you can get free money from the government to go to school. I'm like, well, that's what I'll do. So that's what I started to do. And my great grandma just so happened to die at that time. And my mom called and said, Hey, you're, you know, your great grandma's dead. And I said, well, that's too bad. And who's living in our house? And she's like, nobody, it's on the market, but you can come live there. So I came back to Oregon. I sold my truck and bought a plane ticket and came home to Salem and, and started flying, got some student loans, started doing it. How long did you uh, fly non-commercial planes before you, you got your commercial pilot's license? Um, I, I, I basically kind of started and just went all the way through. I started out with, I started out in Salem. I got my private pilot's license. September 11 happened, which really put a big damper on the whole world. Um, but the airline industry, especially the aviation industry. And so I moved at that time over to bend to go rock climbing and ended up getting my instrument rating in, in uh, Redmond. And then I ended up going to a school called Airline Transport Professionals, ATP. And it was cool because I got to fly all around the country in a multi-engine plane. So I got multi-engine night cross-country time. So I built up all of my hours and got my ratings and got my air, got my commercial, and then after commercial comes ATP, airline transport pilot license certificate. Um, and then on my way back from Arizona, I happened to see a sign that said skydiving. And I was like, well, skydiving, they must need a pilot. So I pulled <laughs> in, and they're like, no, we don't need pilots. I'm like, oh, okay. And then two days later, they called me, and they're like, where are you? Get down here. And the pilot before me had augered in, he'd, he'd crashed. And so there was an opening. So I hopped in the plane and took off and flew skydivers for a while. And then um, I really wanted to go fly for the airlines and the airlines were in St. Croix. So I was like, well, I got to go back down to St. Croix. So went back down to St. Croix and um, flew out of St. Thomas for a while. And then um, flew charters all around the Caribbean and then ended up flying for the airlines. Nice. I started my path to, to getting my pilot's license. I've flown, I did my solo, just about to start doing my, my night drop flies and stuff across countries to really dial in and, and get my license and be good. But uh, things didn't pan out that way, and I don't have my license, but that's another story. <laughs> um, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a glorified taxi driver. You know, it's a glorified bus driver, and and it's an awesome profession. It really is. I had a lot of fun, but at the same time, you know, it, it, there is a monotonous factor that kicks in after a while, especially flying for the airlines. It's like, you're going to a to B to C to yeah. a to B to C trying not to fall asleep. <laughs> a friend of mine, a good friend of mine is actually a, a pilot, um, for a, well, say an unspecified airline. Um, and it, it's quite a, an interesting, schedule that he keeps you know he's home for a few days and then he leaves for a few days and like you said it's going from you know new york to atlanta to florida to atlanta back to new york and then you lay over and he same it's, it's just a cycle and it's I, I give him a lot of credit i give his wife a lot of credit for for putting up with that kind of stuff too yeah when uh when did you make the jump from doing things for other people to kind of doing things more for yourself and becoming the entrepreneur that you've become 
Well, I was flying charters out of out of Florida. I was predominantly in Lear jets and um, Hawkers and Falcons, but predominantly in Lear 35s. And I got I got called in one day to the office and they fired me. And I was like, for what? And it was some bullshit thing that wasn't even my fault, that wasn't ever really even a topic that had been expunged and it wasn't even a thing. It was for flying a skydive plane without a tag on the seatbelt. And, um, and I, and I, and I explained the situation. They, they re hired me like pretty much straight away. But I realized like if, if I could get fired just that easily for something that wasn't even my fault or it wasn't even, it, it wasn't even accurate. It wasn't like I should have been fired. Right. That's not job security. That's, that's, that's scary for me. And so um, I, I quit about a week later and told my girlfriend at the time, I said, Hey, I'm, I'm going back to bend. I'm done with this. And um, she says, Oh, well, Hey, could I come with you? I said, well, sure. So she came back with me to bend and um, we had no idea what we were going to do. And we were having a bottle of wine one night and this guy was putting up the fence in our, at our rental house. And I went out and talked to him and, it's like, hey, that's really cool. I'd never seen a metal post for a fence and beautiful. There were no knots in the wood. And like that looks really cool. I said, are you doing all these subdivisions? And he's like, no, we don't want to. We just want to stick for one and twos. I was like, well, I, we could do that. We could we could do the subdivisions. Because this was about 2006, 2005, 2006, where everything was just starting to go up and up and up in the housing market. And so we started a fence company and I realized like there's so much more security and working for myself than in anybody else. Like I may not eat, I may be hungry, I may not be able to pay the bills, but that's on me, you know, and right. everything I make is back to me, you know? And so, I, yeah, the fence company was the first time I really took that leap of faith. How long did, did you have that fence company? Uh, we had it a couple of years and uh, it was going really well. I mean, things were, were booming. I mean, we were, we were right up there pretty dang quick. And um, I just got, I got tired. I, I was ready for a break. I've been working flat out. So I called my partner and I told her, I said, Hey, I, I need to go somewhere. I'm about to kill myself or somebody else. And I said, either Mexico or Hawaii. And she's like, all right. She called me back later. And she says, you got you to gotta get to the airport. You're on your way out to Hawaii. Like, okay, I've never actually been there. Like, tell me what, what does that mean? Is, I know it's a state, but I don't know much else. And she goes, okay, well, you're going to Oahu, which is the island. And Honolulu is the town. And there's Waikiki in Honolulu and in Oahu. I'm like, okay, okay. And I got out there and I, I called her as soon as the door opened. I could feel the aloha. And I called her and I, I told her, I said, I live here now. I said, you can either keep the company or you can sell it or I don't care what you do, but I am now living in Oahu. And she's like, are you drunk? What are you doing? I said, no, nope, nope. I just live here. And she goes, who are those people? Where are you at the bar? And I said, no, I'm still on the airplane. I haven't got the plane yet, but I know <laughs> I live here. And um, so a couple, about three weeks later, we had a company sold. And four weeks later, we were living in Maui. She moved and out there with you? Oahu. She moved out there with you? She did. Yeah. Yeah. She said, she says, yeah, no, I'm not staying here in the winter. I, I'm, she was from Florida. So she, she, she gladly picked up sticks and took off to Maui also. Uh, when did you, so now for the big question, 
when did the idea of the hydro flask come into play? Uh, probably about four years after we got to Oahu, we had a sign company and, um, I was, I was thirsty and I wanted a water bottle and I was used to buying plastic Nalgene water bottles. And I went into the sporting goods store. They had none on the shelves. They said there was nobody else doing water bottles. And it just kind of came in through the back of my head and out through my mouth. I will, I will do that. (laughs) And one thing led to another and, and then there was hydro flask. How did that, process coming i mean i know there's a lot of people who kind of have these little sparks of ideas but they don't know how to get get it from the brain to their hands so to speak how how is that process for you i asked a lot of questions because i i mean i did not know anything i mean i had no concept of what anything was about the water bottle industry or anything like i had no idea so I just started asking people. I did know that I needed to go to China and everything was made in China, is made in China. And so um, I, I took off to Shanghai and found a bottle factory that turned out to be a plastic water bottle factory. And um, the guy had a cousin who um, possibly knew of a water bottle factory. And so he you know, wrote down on a piece of paper for the taxi driver to get me to the train station and the train station. I had another piece of paper that I had to show him and ended up, you know, down in, in Hanzhou and showed up at the train station and about 4 million people at the train station, but I was the only white guy. And this woman came up and she's like, are you Travis? I'm like, yeah, thank God. (laughs) You know, who are you? And I didn't care who she was. I was going home with her no matter. And uh, her and her husband had a, a company that uh, helped people source products from China. And um, I said, all right, well, great. I'm looking for a metal water bottle factory. And they said, all right, tomorrow we'll, we'll go find one. And we went down and they said, nope, we don't do double wall vacuum insulated. And I, and at that point I only wanted to do like a thermal bottle. I, I didn't want to do a single wall. And so we went to another factory and they said, no, and then we went to another factory and they said, well, that's stupid, but yeah, we can try it. <laughs> and so they took a risk and they, we tried it. They made us 3000 of them and um, we could only afford, we, I mean, so then I went back to Oahu and sold everything we had and, and moved back home to Bend, moved into my mom's house and we could only afford 1500 of them. And, um, so we got 1500 and found a sales rep and he basically sold us out and he sold, well, I don't know if that sounds right, but he, uh, (laughs) he sold all, he sold through our, he sold us, he sold through our inventory. That's what I tried to say. And got the other 1500 in and they were pretty much sold by the time they, they reached and got another, I think either 10 or 20,000 after that. And then another 40,000, like the next month. Just and then compounding. it was like off to the races from there. 600% a quarter. In a quarter? Every quarter was 600% greater wow. than the one before it for quite a few years. How did you, what was, you said you didn't want a, a single wall bottle. How did the idea of coming to, to make it insulated and, and dual line, what was the creative process on that? Well, um, I, when I, so when I was 
thirsty and I went into the sporting goods store. I went in to get a plastic Nalgene bottle and that's all I really knew from my rock climbing days. And when they did not have, well, they had two, they had a pink one and a green one and I ended up buying them both. But, um, I went back to the sign company. We had a uh, Oahu signs and screen printing. And I asked, I had two employees that were quite a bit younger than me that were hip and cool. And so I asked them, I was like, what do I do for a water bottle? And one of them told me about this aluminum one. She said, you know, you got to get this aluminum one. It's awesome. And it's just so cool. And so I went out and I paid like a stupid amount. It was like $20 for a water bottle. And which at the time was just outrageous. And it felt cool, but it was really soft. And there was um, this gold stuff and I dropped it and it dented too easily, which wasn't cool. And I, but I, but I just, I kept drinking out of it. And a few days later I realized, Oh, this kind of stinks. I need to wash it. I look inside and the gold stuff had flaked off. And it reminded me when I lived in Australia, there was a story about people who keep, I think like parakeets in their kitchens. And for, I don't, I don't condone that. I don't know why people <laughs> would keep animals in their kitchen, but the, the parrots would die. And they found that it was from like Teflon or whatever the material is that people scraping pots and pans and then just off gassing. And so I had this in my mind, like, Oh, those parakeets are dead. What's going to happen to me? So I called the company and they were really rude. They were like, screw you. We don't have to tell you what's in that. We don't have to tell you anything, you know, like it basically hung up on me. And so when that happened, I was like, Oh, now it's on like Donkey Kong. Like, <laughs> you, you know, screw you. Watch this. And um, then I asked the other employee, and or I actually asked my brother. I take that back. My brother had just started working at REI here in Bend, and I asked him, and he's like, oh, yeah, there's this single wall metal bottle. You got to get it. It's awesome. So I got one, and I took a drink, and it just spilled all over my shirt. And I just felt stupid, and it just, it, I would, leave it on the beach, go surf, come back. And it was too hot to drink. And it just burned my tongue. And I was like, Oh, this is ridiculous. There's gotta be a better way. And I remembered, I actually have it up here. My grandpa had a big old school thermos that was made out of like real thick metal and then real thick glass. You drop it on your toe, you're going to break bones. I was like, well, why can't we do something like that? But instead of doing metal, that's so fragile. Why don't we just do metal so we do metal and metal and so when i got to china and, and i asked them they said well you know like in japan they do have these little tiny milk bottles that are double wall vacuum insulated stainless steel and so i guess we could just make it bigger and make it into the water bottle that because i had designed I, I spent a lot of time studying different orifices of <laughs> bottles like juice bottles and beer bottles and pop bottles and milk containers and like every every liquid containment unit I could find I, I took copious amounts of notes on and like what's cool what's not cool what do I like what do I don't like and um, I actually I just put it together today that the very first hydro flask actually looked a lot like a scuba tank <laughs> <laughs> I, I, and and it was completely subconscious up until today that um that the first one pretty much looks just like a, a, a dive tank. <laughs> Rounded towards the top and nice. That, that's the one problem. I do think I, I understand why you were trying to do so much research is it's finding the right sized opening where it's not going to pour out, but it's not going to 
dribble out. Good for hot, good for cold, good for temperate temperatures. Yeah. Um, I have to ask, since you're a former pilot, any thoughts of having a line of hydro flasks that'll fit an Airbus cockpit holder? Specifically asking for that pilot friend of mine. <laughs> <laughs> it yeah, I, yeah. It seems like it would be a it would be a pretty straightforward thing. I only found that there were like I remember there were two like the 1999 Toyota Camry and quite a few Mercedes. The bottle would not fit in the cup holder, but the early bottles fit in almost all car cup holders. But yeah, I'm sorry. I didn't do that for the airline industry too. (laughs) Uh, He he brought that up. He's like, there's, he has one thing that kind of sort of fits and he gets frustrated not having being able to have a a bottle that he can bring without, you know, regular water bottles, but something that like a hydro flask that he can carry with him to and from everywhere he goes and fit nicely in his cockpit. Laugh now that that I asked that. So, do you have any business schooling at all prior to any of this, or is this kind of just learning as you go? No, I've just always learned as I went. When I was twelve, our next door neighbor died, and um, my mom was asked to do the estate sale for his house. And we were walking through the house with his sister and she looked at me and she said, you can have anything you want in the house. You can have one like item, you know, and he had like Rolexes and artwork and he had all these fancy, fancy things. And I was like, I was overwhelmed almost because I mean, we lived right next door to him, but we were eating government cheese. I mean, we were, we were poor, you know, and, and broke. And he was not, he had money, he had wealth, he had power, you know? And it was like, it was, it was almost overwhelming. I felt like I was in a museum and a little overwhelming. We go upstairs and all of a sudden, like these lights came on and the angels started singing and the harps were playing and there was this bookshelf. And I said, I want that. She's like, you want the bookshelf? I said, no, I want all the books on it. (laughs) She's like, uh, okay. And I had no idea what they were. I just knew that I'd crossed some sort of threshold into another world. And they turned out to be Brian Tracy, Jim Rohn, Zig Ziglar, Dale Carnegie, a lot of the like hardcore inspirational early business books and, and motivational books, Wayne Dyer, things like that. And living in Salem, it, it rained a lot and I was grounded a lot. So I spent a lot of time in my bedroom just pouring through these business books and, you know, kind of getting my book smarts. And then when I was 14, going down to my dad's dive shop, uh, he would routinely leave me the keys and the money bag and the shotgun and be like, you're in charge. So I got to actually try out what I had learned in the business books. And a lot of it did not work and some of it did work, but I've never really i've never taken any professional like training or anything any specific mistakes that you wish you could have avoided or somebody would have given you a little heads up about prior i i think um one of the big ones is i would have i would have liked to have had a mentor i didn't really know that such thing existed i i didn't 
I mean, I always looked up to a lot of the pilots and, and I read the piloting books and watched the movies and I walked the walk and I talked the talk and I dressed like a pilot dresses. But when I got into business, it would have been nice to have a real life human to talk to. And it would have been nice to have a really good attorney who I could really trust, who was really on my side. I've been screwed over a lot throughout my life because I did not have good legal representation. Um, so I, I would say probably having a good attorney on my team would have been good and a good CFO. I've had partner, my partner stole a lot of money and she stole a lot of inventory. And, um, you know, I, I've, I've been, I've been taken quite a few times because I wasn't able to really know what the books are saying. Right. And, um, and because I didn't have anybody to tell me what that, you know, legalese actually means in real life. I mean, you can read, yeah. I can read it and I can, I, I know what it means, but I don't know what the ramifications of those words actually are. Right. What are you, did you sell um, Hydro Flask? Or is, I, did. Are you, I did, yeah. And what are you doing with yourself now? <laughs> Have you retired? Or are you still just kind of living life as it comes? Or do you have kind of a, I guess, a, a, we'll call it a day job, so to speak? Yeah, I tried to retire. Um, I was married to my first wife, and we just traveled all over the planet, and we just took off and had a lot of fun. We got divorced, and um, and then my financial advisor from the you know who'd been a friend of mine for years and years from my he was our banker at the fence company, and he was our banker at at the Hydroflask company, and then he became my financial advisor when he moved over to a financial advisory firm, big ass name firm that everybody recognizes. Uh, and then he stole all my money and I ended up sleeping on my trampoline uh, just a few years ago and it had to start over completely from scratch. So I started Jesus. the Tumalo group and started helping people start businesses and, and sourcing products from China and Mexico and the United States if we can. And, um, and so that's what I do now. I've, I've got a bunch of property and I, I chainsaw trees. I've got a young daughter. I, I am a single dad and take care of her and do that kind of stuff. There is no legal ramifications or avenues for you to recover being taken the way you did a few years ago. I talked to an attorney and he told me we're looking at at least 250 uh, retainer and upwards of, you know, could be 500,000, uh, cause it's a big name brand and good luck. You know, like you signed the paperwork, Travis. Well, yeah, but not for them to steal. Right. <laughs> and they just flat out stole. They stole it <laughs> twice. One time I was able to get it back. Um, I saw what they did and I called them out on it and I got it back. The second time they were a little bit more clever and, uh, it was all gone. How do you maintain your sanity with that? Uh, you know, yeah, it's, it was tough, <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> thank God it was in the summertime and it was warm enough to sleep on the, on the trampoline. I would have been screwed if it had been wintertime. Um, you know, I, I think the way kind of kept me going was, okay, well, I've got the blueprint. I know what success looks like. I know how to do it. I've done it once. I can do it again. I can do it again and again and again. And, and so I just, it, you know, it kind of turned out to be a challenge. It was like, okay, it's just another chapter in the book, but here we go. 
you kind of have this cycle of, of building things up and then starting from the bottom and building things back, starting from the bottom. So you're taking that those experiences and, and I guess molding it in a way that people can take and learn from that and, and take their ideas. How many businesses or, or people have you helped since you started your newest company? Quite a few. I mean, I, I probably have about 10 clients at any given time. And so, I mean, I'd say probably uh, hundred. <laughs> so I've had maybe a hundred or so clients. And it's, it's all through trial and error that you're worked out in for marketing for your resources and things like that, building good business relationships. Um, where do you see yourself in the next say five years? I mean, I'm guessing you've got more people or people that you can trust a little more dealing with things for you. I do. Yeah. Yeah. I, I learned a lot from, from being taken, <laughs> you know, like, uh, um, I, I learned what not to do and what to do and um, hopefully won't make the same mistakes any, anymore. Um, in five years from now, I think, I, I, I think that because of my daughter being so young, like I've kind of, Oh, I don't know what a good word to put in here is. Maybe if I go on to college, um, <laughs> like I've kind of not definitely not given up. That's absolutely not the right term. I've, I've, I've come to the conclusion that it's best for me to stay in this geographical region right now until she's at least 18 or 19. And then like, then I can split and I can head out and she can come with me or, you know, she can go her own way, but I, I need to be stable here for her now. And so I've kind of, what's the word like reserved? I've reserved myself. To, I don't know. Like hit the pause button. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I've kind of paused on the international travel and I still travel to give talks. I do a lot of speaking, uh, which I really enjoy. I don't know that I'm good at it, but I sure have fun. <laughs> That's the and, important thing. Yeah, exactly. And um, so I still travel. I'm, I'm, I have her ha half time. And so um, her mom and I get along really well with scheduling, which is great. Um, so I can imagine in five years, I'll, I'll probably be doing maybe about the same as what I'm doing now um, with, with a few little twists and turns. I've got some ideas for some nonprofits and things that I'm, I'm very passionate about and I haven't seen other people do and, and there's still a need for mm -hmm. what I want to do. So I, I, I can imagine, this is the first time I really talked about this. I, I can imagine I'll probably hopefully be doing a, a charity. Nice. What kind of talks do you do? All of the above topics, like <laughs> business and just Travis and adventures and all kinds of crazy stuff. Like whatever people will hire me for and, and you know, fly me out for. In your, uh, your, your vast travels across the globe, what are some of your favorite destinations? I, I do love Iceland. I, I think it's a really awesome country. Um, I, I really enjoy the Orient also. I, I love going to China. Um, it's, it's a very unique country and it's changed a lot. Like it's, it's, it, they're so modern. It's so much different than it was just 10 years ago. And of course I, I haven't been since 2020, um, 
we really need to watch out for them. We really need to take them seriously um, or else we could be in some really big trouble. Um, yeah, I would say probably Iceland is, is probably my favorite. I still love the Caribbean. I still love St. Croix and the U.S. Virgin Islands. Where can people find you or, or contact you if they have ideas and they want you to help them with getting things going? The best way is probably email Travis at tumalogroup.com, T-U-M-A-L-O-G-R-O-U-P.com. I'm also on LinkedIn and I've got an assistant who's going to start helping me filter through the, the onslaught of people who come in through LinkedIn also. Good to know. Um, now is about the time that I will kind of throw some random questions at you. Feel free to answer them. Say, I don't know and pass, whatever. It's just for fun. So first question, would you rather have a personal maid or a personal chef? Chef. Wholeheartedly agreed. So hard and frustrated to try and find good food that's healthy. Yeah, I, I'm just not interested in food. I've eaten at restaurants most of my life and eaten on the road most of my life, and I have no interest in food. <laughs> I'd love to have a chef. I love to cook, but I, it would just be one less thing that I'd have to worry about, and I might be able to shed some pounds because they'll be cooking me good, healthy food. Yep. Yep. Question. I hear that. <laughs> Question two. Um, would you rather be an extra in an Oscar winning movie or the lead in a box office bomb? Oh, I would rather be an extra. Uh, yeah. I was an extra one time in, in a movie and um, it, I, I didn't make the final cut. The scene that I was in didn't make the cut. And then when I watched the movie, the movie made absolutely zero sense to me because that one scene was left out. Um, so yeah, I'd, I'd say that the, the success one would have been cool. <laughs> I've, I've done background work since 2013. So I've, I've kind of been in things that have done well and things that have not done so well, but I wasn't anywhere close to being the lead. I'm more of set dressing. Um, but I think I would rather be the lead in a box office bomb because I think there's some, some examples like Ryan Reynolds and Green Lantern, where the movie really wasn't all that great, but he did a good job, and he's clearly still doing his craft, so among many other things. Uh, question, next question. Would you rather be royalty a thousand years ago or an average person today? I think royalty a thousand years ago would have been pretty dope. I, I think that would be pretty darn cool. Like, it would not be easy. I've actually met the queen. I met the queen a number of years ago. Um, but yeah, I think that'd be, that'd be really cool. I like, I just love to be alive a thousand years ago. Like if I could go back and be a pirate, like in the real pirate <laughs> days, like, I, I don't know, man, like I'd, I'd hop in the time travel machine. Yeah. I've, I've always loved the medieval era, the, the knights, the chivalry, the swords, the, castles i would definitely rather be royalty a thousand years ago plus that they seem to have things made for the most part yeah. definitely a, a harder rougher more rugged life but i i think i can tolerate that well and being royalty you could kind of tip you know like dip in and out of different levels like yeah. you could go kick with this you know with the black iron smith guy and you could go go kick it with like other Kings and Queens and other far off lands. And you could go and you could join the military, but like 
be close enough to be part of the action, but not be in danger. Like right. you could have the best of all worlds. I think that would be really cool. I, I wholeheartedly agree with that. Let's see the uh, last question. Would you rather have a full battery, phone battery, or your full tank of gas? <laughs> um, I would say full battery because I can always walk to get gas. I can't always like I could jump start it, but I would be nervous to turn it off again. Uh, Cause if I can't find somebody to help jump start the battery, so I'd say full battery and I can figure out gas later. I'm going to go a completely different direction off that. I would rather have the full tank of gas because then I won't have to worry about anybody. I can just drive and not have anybody bother me. Just drive and, and go either northeast into Vermont, ideally during the fall, or just keep driving west. <laughs> but, um, That's awesome. I, I, look at. <laughs> I think we're hitting about my, my time frame. I've, I've stolen... Uh, a vast amount of your time. I greatly appreciate the conversation and you coming on any parting words. I just want to say thank you so much. And yeah, I really do encourage people to go out and just start, just start doing whatever it is. They have a calling to do. If, if you've been called to do something, then, then I think that you need to act. And I believe very strongly in act boldly and unseen forces will come to your aid. And I know from my own experience, you don't need to have any knowledge of what you're doing. You just need to act and ask a lot of questions, be super inquisitive, and you'll figure it out. You'll be all right. I like that. Again, thank you very much, sir. Thank you, Michael. Thanks for listening to another episode of Adding Context. You can follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or visit us at addingcontext.com. You can also support our show via Patreon. Send us feedback and show ideas to podcast at addingcontext.com.